Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Helena Norberg-Hodge. Helena is founder and director of Local Futures. Local Futures is a non-profit organisation dedicated to the revitalisation of culture and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Helena is the author of the international best-selling book Ancient Futures about tradition and change in the Himalayan region of Ladakh. She is also the author of Local is Our Future 2019 in which she advocates for localised alternatives to the global economy. She's well ahead of the curve with all that stuff, whether it's like things that's apparently sort of small and parochial, like farmers' markets, or the idea of a sort of a confederacy for running the world differently. Um, hey, if, you don't, if you're not on my mailing list, get on it. It's russellbrand.com. If you don't watch my YouTube channel and are not subscribing to it, please do. If you ain't following me on social media, do that too. Um, and listen to some of the comments you sent about Julia Cameron. People loved the Julia Cameron episode, actually, didn't they, Jen? I got, like, mates like Simon Amstel said he loved it. Noel Fitzpatrick said he loved it. Lots of positive feedback for Julia Cameron. What a wonderful, warm, wise lady she is. Deborah Glass goes, Laziness is just another word for fear. Does anyone else here think this beautiful energy is also profoundly profound i'm stunned by this statement hit me between the eyes bam so true getting off my duff right this second and love my life to and love my life to the fullest caged or not thank you i wonder where deborah glass is from when i hear things like getting off my duff because i've never heard that before have you duff i mean i presume that means ass but it could mean something else so she could rest on her shoulder or her groin we just don't know with deborah glass but in any event, duff, there's a word to get your chops round. Natalie C said of Julia Cameron's fantastic episode of Under the Skin, love this, I love this synchronicity. I just revisited the book after years and I'm working with a hundred other people on an online group. That's a good idea. I, I wanna, I've been doing the morning pages. Have you, Jenny? Bollocks, really? Did you do it this morning? No, yeah, I didn't do it this morning either. Elaine Duncan, Julie's book, The Artist's Way, has made such a difference in my writing and the way I view myself and my inner critic. I adore her. She's such a special and gifted person. This was one of my favourite interviews you've ever done. Bravo. Thanks, Elaine. And Juan Tard, that believing mirror idea smacked me upside the head. I've never thought that before, but I already know who those people are. Right, they surround ourselves with people that are positive, that believe in us, that let's deny anyone the opportunity to criticise us for even a second. I don't want to hear a negative. I want to hear anything other than you're great. That's why these comments are the way they are. Um, okay, before we get into Helena, we've got some fantastic episodes of Under the Skin coming up soon. I hope you've enjoyed the recent spate of fantastic guests and the fact that we've gone to two episodes a week. What a lovely bunch of guys we are. Um, we've got Ricky Gervais coming soon. We've got Charles Eisenstein. If you ain't read his uh, brilliant article, Coronation, you should read it at once. And who else have we got? Oh, Dr. Shafali, parenting doctor. And uh, let's just say powerful force. Let's just leave it there. But before we uh, stray into any further uh, complex territories, let's get to Helena Norberg-Hodge. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Helena, thank you for coming on Under the Skin to talk to me, Russell Brand, on this lovely luminary podcast. Now, we're here together in rural Australia, thankfully together. It's difficult to talk about anything that's not uh, connected to the global pandemic. How does your field of expertise connect to what's happening now? Well, very, very much, because for 40 years, I've been an advocate of strengthening community and the local economy. And this pandemic is, I think, showing a lot of people how important that is. We're realizing that we want to have as a human right, everywhere in the world, a diverse, healthy, fresh food economy that does not involve transporting everything we eat to the other side of the world to be peeled or washed or does not involve what we now have in the global food economy, which is that the market, the global market, stimulates every farmer to grow 
bigger and bigger monocultures, which are then exported across the world. And of course, the monocultures in themselves are so destructive, they're anti-life, and they create these unnatural conditions where even when you're supposedly organic, because it's so unnatural, you have to have all kinds of external inputs. So fundamentally, strengthening local economies is about going back to what every culture did before the global economy forced them into slave-like production in cotton plantations or tea plantations or... Um, you know, and created a, a situation where on one side of the world you had slaves growing things for the traders and on the other side of the world you started getting an industrializing process where people were earning more money. So we created a situation that was ideal for global traders in money and goods. And that is really um, now beginning to crumble and we are seeing of course one of the major effects of this system is climate change but we're seeing not only these pandemics which are linked to the unhealthy production you know animal factories uh, you know unhealthy transport we're we're beginning to see also that this system is producing everywhere in every country a bigger and bigger gap between rich and poor uh, and it's escalating you know, in my native country of Sweden, in the country of Bhutan, where I've worked for many years. It's, we, we really must wake up to the fact that it's the economic system, the global economic system, that is creating one crisis after another. And one more thing too, which, you know, when you've sat on that television program and said there's no point voting because corporations rule the world, well, that's another effect of this system that we don't have democracy. You know, we're basically ruled by a global corporate media, by global businesses and banks that are driving policy in the wrong direction. Fantastic. Um, I was very interested in what you said there, Helena, that the economic system that we of global trade that is still dominant is a legacy of colonial imperialism. Its roots are in slavery and domination over, you know, the earth herself or itself, however you see those sorts of things, and a kind of enslaved population. And of course, now slavery is uh, abolished figuratively, but a good many, you know, there's slavery in the world and there's also a, a form of slavery through poverty. Yeah, absolutely. But you see, also we're enslaved in this way that the giant businesses that have been, you know, particularly dramatically in the last 30 years, been deregulated through treaties, through trade treaties. These giants are blackmailing our governments and basically saying, you know, even after 2008, when it was clear that society doesn't do well having financial traders trading in, in mortgages of people's lives they've never met, they don't even know where they are, and we saw the instability that it created. So, it was so clear to everybody we needed to regulate the global banks and regulate global finance, but it didn't happen because we were told too big to fail, we're too dependent on this system, and we don't realize that over these last 30 years, these corporations have been bullying governments into signing in black and white in clauses in the trade treaties called ISDS clauses, Investor State Dispute Settlements, Governments are forced to sign, we will not do anything that might threaten your potential profit. We promise, we agree that if we did anything, like for instance, raise the minimum wage or bring in some environmental protection, uh. then you can sue us. And they're suing them in kangaroo courts, out of sight. It's crazy, you know, it's not a secret really. Where and can yet people look is, to learn more about that? That's a sort of a phenomenal secret world. Yeah, it about. is, and yet it's not secret. You know, it's all out in the open. They can come to our website, localfutures.org, and we have uh, lots of information. And we're trying <coughs> also not just to that provide... That was a water choke, by the way. Sorry? I just water oh. went down the wrong hole. <laughs> Still healthy. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're you know we're trying not just trying, but we we feel so privileged because at such an early time, you know, the awareness of the need to localize. 
put me in touch with grassroots movements across the world. And so we are so privileged because we also have a far less negative view of the world now. We have far more hope than most people because we see evidence everywhere at the grassroots that people long for connection, for community, and for connection to nature. We're developing a huge cultural shift where the appreciation of animals, the love for, for um, you know, plants, animals, and a respect for indigenous culture, a respect for the feminine. This is all growing into the mainstream culture. Is it, it has where are we translated. seeing this, Helena? I'm seeing it everywhere at the grassroots. Give us like, an example. Well, for one thing, the where it's so structural and so real is in a growing global local food movement, which doesn't recognize itself as a global movement. That because in my organization we've been working in you know more than a dozen countries, we've been in touch with many more language groups because our books were translated into more than 40 languages. And so we've been in touch with people, you know, from South America, from Africa, from Asia. And so all around the world in an intuitive way, often without any knowledge about how this global system functions, people are just reacting like, you know, the wife of a small farmer who was about to commit suicide because he was facing bankruptcy. She had heard that farmer's markets can really help and, you know, try to get one started in her town in, in Devon. You know, this is just one example. Devon, England. Devon, England, yes. Go on, England. <laughs> England is pretty good in this movement and it's partly because we started raising awareness about it in the, in the late 80s and 90s. And the same in America, same in Australia when I first came out here in 2000, there was there was no local food movement. I was told, no, no, it can't happen here. And I did help to get ideas out that have launched, you know, I'm obviously not just me, but it's it definitely is something that we've been very, um, uh, we've been pioneers of, you know, there, there's been no other organization in the world actually promoting localization at a global level and from a global perspective. So I suppose that what's required, I talk about this politically and spiritually frequently, is a form of confederacy. You're talking about a, for a kind of confederation of organised local food. Well, it's not about distribution, really. It's about growth, growth and local distribution as opposed to global distribution. Exactly. You can see that that means that diets might become more seasonal and that um, the kind of food we eat more governed by nature but it's our attempt to overwhelm nature uh, again not because of like the con the desire of the consumer but as you explained the origins of these ideas are in global trade ideology it's not exactly. like oh we need strawberries 24 7 we need to be connected to nature we need to be harmonized with the natural forces that um that have guided our lives through evolution for environmental change and natural selection now uh, one of the things that we are discovering in the corona virus is that supply chains are going to start to break down. This system cannot sustain itself. I was struck by the call of manufacturers and airlines for bailout support in much the same way as the banks were bailed out through quantitative easing in 2008, whereby sometimes through crisis of various kinds, whether financial or in this case sort of uh, microbiological, it, the reality is suddenly exposed that we're living beneath the veneer of an artificial system that exists not for the benefit of the people that it's supposed to serve, but for the benefit of the people at the top of the various hierarchical pyramids. Yeah, and it's so remarkable that we're letting this happen because when we step back and look at the bigger picture, you know, the actual winners in this type of growth is less than 1% of the global population. Mm -hmm. So we really are crazy to, to let this happen. But I think what I see as the biggest problem is that at the grassroots, there is this amazing, natural, spontaneous localization movement growing, but it needs to be reinforced by more knowledge of the vulnerability and the destruction of the global system. 
I believe that if more people could hear this message, that we would find in a very, very rapid, uh, you know, in a very short time, that people say, yeah, we don't want a system that makes less than 1% richer and richer, and that at every step of the way right now is pushing government, business, us as individuals to use more energy and technology for every single thing that's done, whether in education, healthcare, in every arena, the push is towards more energy, more technology, and we're dumping the human race, this overabundant renewable resource of people. We're just dumping, and when we dump them, part of what happens is fundamentalism, terrorism, violence, abuse. Addiction, mental addiction, illness. Addiction, mental illness, absolutely. And this is because human life itself is no longer regarded as sacred because we have been deposited in new roles as consumers above all else and this is exacerbated over the last hundred years and often times of crisis can be an opportunity for review i was saying before in a youtube video i did on my youtube channel that that i've never i've never experienced anything that's so simultaneously global and personal there's wherever you go in the world or wherever you communicate with in the world they're affected by it and then you are individually affected because you're thinking what's going to happen to my financial situation then you go to the supermarket as i just did and like oh my god so like in a way Helena, do you see this as a kind of a global opportunity for us to instantiate different systems? And what do those systems look like? Does it mean that we're growing our own food individually? Does it mean that we're living in more tribalized communities? How do you see it working in a like in a place like Devon, England, or a place like Mullumbimby in Australia, or Ojai, California, or wherever you are in the world? How how do people change? How do we free ourselves from these deeply embedded tendrils of a global capitalist system? Well, it's first of all, it's really important to look at it both from a psychological point of view and from the structural point of view. And also, I hope people do go to our website because we have examples of how it is happening already. So right here in Malambimbi, in Devon, and in Ojai, there's already a demonstration of what we need to do. And what that is, is first of all, start building the interdependent human scale local economy and let's remember which our leaders do not and i mean our political and economic leaders that there's nothing more important that we produce as human beings than food right you know water we don't produce and we think we do sometimes but you know food is also the activity that most of the human race evolved with in production, in harvesting, in processing. It's in our DNA, and it's also a reason why people respond so amazingly well to the farmer's market, to the amazing, smaller, more diversified farms that are demonstrating that you can, in just a few years, produce vastly more by diversifying, by coming back to having both some vegetables, some fruits, some animals, very important part of it, that they actually, in that diversified system, you will always be able to produce more than you ever can in monoculture. But what it needs is more people on the land, and it needs uh, support because we're subsidizing the monocultures, we're subsidizing the situation so that food that's been transported from 10,000 miles away will cost less than food from a mile away. That's in a completely manipulated economy and that supports the technology, the fossil fuels, you know, the chemicals are also technology that replace people. And then we get this artificial situation where the toxic, you know, processed food costs much less than healthy local organic food. But so in terms of what it looks like, there are just, well, first of all, I hope if you haven't seen it, Russell, I hope you look at the biggest little farm, which is actually making a bit of a name for itself. It's a fabulous film that shows this farm outside LA, about two hours outside LA, that took this barren monoculture, dead, 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 and unproductive, and 
in just a few years turned it into this inspiring, thriving farm that also gave space to wildlife. That, you know, the, the remarkable thing is that we can, and people are at the grassroots, showing that we can produce vastly more using less land and less water. And they're doing it also by using more adapted indigenous, non-hybrid, you know, non-corporate seeds, varieties of animals. They're going back to the heirloom varieties that are adapted to different ecosystems, you know, adapted to the cold or the heat or the water. So this, the local food economy is, is the most important. It's also the biggest, clearest sign of what we need to do. And it's not everyone growing food in their back garden. It's about restoring a balance between city and country and allowing more smaller towns and even villages to survive. And one of the movements I'm connected to is one in China where this agricultural professor whom I first met in 2006 started a rural reconstruction movement precisely to try to counter the dominant trend into the city that dominant trend into the city is what's being pushed structurally by the global market and big business. So, a lot more to say. Shall I say a bit more? No, let me ask this question if you don't mind, Helena. The, this idea about sort of empowering small communities, towns and villages, I was, I was struck by how that idea is kind of controlled by conservatism and the right, typically. You know, when you think of like the, you know, like for example, Brexit, or the rise of Trump, broadly regarded as sort of a kind of right-wing reflux, a reaction against you know, sort of detached neoliberalism, so shall we say. And actually, there's a point where all these ideologies start to meet, where you recognise that people that are, like, are, say, conservative, although in a way there's nothing actually conservative about a human being, that's like saying you were born a Tottenham fan or something, like... You, that really the values there like are understandable like nationalism is tribalism reappropriated conservatism is wanting to protect people wanting to protect your community all of these things in a sense get artificially grown as if they get fertilized gmo'd modified emotions modified psychological states to all of our natural anthro anthropological resources are harnessed and harvested again in the service of a globalized idea that does not serve the people that have become enslaved by it and give their lives for it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is also what I saw so clearly in Ladakh and Bhutan is that when people have strong intergenerational local community, first of all, I hope we can talk more about that because it creates a completely different identity. It creates a secure identity where people, children grow up feeling fine about just how they are and who they are. They're not being compared to some idea of progress. They've got to be better. And before they're even born, we've got to worry about getting them into a good school and they have to get into that city and get that job. So we've created this intensely competitive monoculture, basically a consumer monoculture. And nationalism was a way of breaking down the community fabric. And when people had that local identity to one another, and to their place, to the land, to the water, to the trees. And they knew that that's what sustained them. They also generally were far more responsible in terms of the use of resources. But the nation state was a big step created by top-down forces with big megaphones standing there and saying, no, no, you are German, you are English, you are Indian. And I saw how even in places like Ladakh and Bhutan, even the football that was brought in, that was so different from the football people used to play. They used to have local games, but it was never this war of and it was like it was this the, the way the football has been perverted is like it's totally part of the nationalism that is against the other and it's not just a fun game, you know. So this is where I think a lot of people, you know, who haven't had that experience of seeing a healthy local economy and a healthy local community have gone wrong. And so many people on the left are sort of harking back to the, you know, actually 
using often Scandinavia as the model of what we should be, you know, and I grew up in Sweden and saw that after the war, especially in Sweden, you know, people had been herded off the land, you know, was brought in was the chemicals that were used in the war to put them on the land and lots of um, technology using cheap fossil fuels, which weren't cheap at all, Hmm. pushing people off the land into high-rise concrete buildings full of fossil fuels and People sitting there already in the 70s in every dwelling, uh, in half of all the dwellings, one person living alone, loneliness, alcoholism, depression, suicide. So we had, even in that relatively benign form of industrialism and globalism, because it was global businesses that were benefiting and driving things in that more benevolent form, we still had huge ecological, spiritual, social problems. So, um, yeah, I mean, what I feel too is a complete understanding for many of my colleagues who've been very resistant to localization. Many of my, you know, dear friends and colleagues, you know, like Naomi Klein and all kinds of people, they have been fearful of localism because they've thought of it as right wing. And I believe this is partly connected to the fact that if you go around, especially the industrialized world, into smaller local communities where there might still be quite a lot of community, you're talking about communities that have been marginalized for hundreds of years, and you're talking about people that out of the competition and fear have often become more prejudiced, more xenophobic, and more conservative in a not very healthy way. So what I'm trying to raise awareness about is the understanding that every psychologist will tell you that when you have strong, deep self-respect, that's when you're able to be far more tolerant of diversity, and it's the insecurity that breeds prejudice and fear how do you develop strong deep self-respect well that's exactly what i was addressing earlier is that that's what was the biggest lesson probably from ancient tibetan culture untouched so did you spend a lot of time in tibet i did spend a lot of time how long how long okay i'll just tell people actually that in my book revolution we uh, there was a chapter where i talked about a lot of your ideas and your experience in developing these local cultures and the kind of ideas that we're discussing now and i actually think that that book revolution might be coming bloody relevant again um, and i love that you had love in there because that's also a very big part of it what else is there what else is there um but like so you spent this time in uh it's called ladakh or Mm. little tibet so it's the westernmost part of tibet and it belongs politically to India and has since the 1840s. But because it was high up on the Tibetan plateau, snowed in for eight months of the year, cool. and it, because of that, it evaded colonialism. And a few missionaries who came out in the 1700s or so didn't really succeed. And it's very interesting also to read their reports, their books that they wrote. They all of them confirm what I'm saying, which is that they were the happiest people they ever met, they were, they were the, the most peaceful people they ever met, the most honest people, they, and that women had such a high status. So, and yet they were convinced they had to convert them, you know, to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but what was amazing was that I arrived there in 75, I was a linguist, I had already learned to speak quite a lot of languages, and I was asked to go out as part of a film team to help... Uh, to pick up a few words of the language of these people who had been so sealed off because no one had been allowed to travel there in the modern era because the Indians feared Chinese incursions. So all the borders were closed and there was army around the borders. No one allowed up there. And then they threw it open to show that this part of Tibet belongs to India. That's why they allowed some tourists to go there. And I thought I'd be there for six weeks. I was living in Paris and quite enjoying it. I was quite normal. What were you doing? I was. I had. I had ended up as a linguist because I had learned a lot of languages very easily. How and many languages do you speak? At that point, I spoke about six, and then I've I've learned about eight. But wow. I'm forgetting most of them. <laughs> but but I did speak. Yeah, eight about eight. And um, and and I did learn languages very quickly at that age, which I absolutely can't do now. So I had been asked to help to 
connect to these people who have been totally sealed off and pick up a bit of the language. And I just totally fell in love with these people, as everybody did who arrived in the early days. It was just almost, I mean, I can't tell you how many women said, I feel like I must have been here in another lifetime. I just feel like I've been, it's a bit like you feel coming to Malambimbi. <laughs> you know, you sort of come home. And and it yeah and it took me many so I learned to speak so anyway I was supposed to be there six weeks I fell so much in love that I had met some professors from the School of Oriental and African Studies oh, and they had, in England in yeah London. they were out there doing research on the language they had also come out as it opened and then we met up after about a month and I had learned to speak a lot already and they said well you could do a, a degree with us at SOAS so then I had an excuse to stay probably as a normal Westerner, I might not have just stayed if I didn't have this thing to do, probably. I, was, I wasn't I was that normal, but I wasn't an activist. And um, so I decided to stay and started doing research on the language, and I went through this whole area, which is about the size of Austria, but only with about 100 villages and a population, total population of about 100,000. And I found everywhere just these amazing, radiant people. And... And so I ended up staying in that part of the world for two years, partly also because I got hepatitis and so on, but I was out in that part of the world for two years. And then after that, I ended up having read Small is Beautiful by Schumacher and then feeling empowered that, you know, probably as a woman, you know, I don't know if I would have decided to write to the Indian government and say, well, how... There is another development path. You know, Schumacher wrote Small is Beautiful. He really understood about the need for human scale. And he was a very well-respected economist, German, but working in England. And, <clears throat> and here he was saying that he'd been to Burma and seen that there really was no real poverty. And he was advocating a real rethinking of the economy. And so I then, you know, wrote to the Indian government and said they've got you know, 300 days a year of sunshine. Why can't we base it on renewable energy instead? And I was able, in a very difficult sort of way, to get some support from the central government. I was still suspected of being a CIA agent, and that's another longer story. But I was able to start... Were you? <laughs> no, you know, when you say it like that to me, I could almost get paranoid again. It's one of the worst things to be accused of, to be a spy. Because you can't prove that you're not. No, because you can't so go, I used yeah, to I feel am a spy, really, actually. Yeah, I used I'm to obliged to answer that question honestly. And I would have been a perfect one because I spoke so many languages. Well, you'd be a good spy. Well, something you are a spy. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a real... What do you call it? Not not spy, but I'm definitely no, not subversive. Be a spy. I'm subversive. You're a subversive. I'm you're a, a subversive. radical. Yeah. You're a rebel. I'm a subversive, but I'm I'm only rebelling against an inhuman patriarchal system. I'm supporting the deep healing and the nurturing and the humanity and the loving connection that everybody longs for. Every man, every woman, honestly. We're driven by that need for approval, for love and connection. And we don't see very clearly these days how every minute of the day we're swimming in a sea where the pressures prevent us from reconnecting the way we need to. And that's partly, you know, what partly what happens is when people understand better the dominant system and when they have a taste of the new local, the new local, then they, you know, they start waking up to that real need. And that's why so many people are stepping out of the dominant, you know, those who can afford it are stepping out of the dominant system to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go off and farm. I want to play music. I want to live a life. I don't want to be in this rat race where every single one, just think of it, even if you're the CEO of Exxon, or you were the CEO of Exxon, you were running like hell because you <laughs> there were mergers every day and when there was a merger and Mobile and Exxon merged, there was only one CEO. So they're chasing their own tail, just scared and constantly pressuring for growth, continuing to extract wealth into a global ozone layer where the money is also now made out of thin air. Hmm. They don't actually have anything, but they have our minds because we believe that money is real when it's not. 
you know, and we're handing over that power. So this is what, you know, we really need to wake up to. Is there a spiritual dimension to your, I can hear from what you're saying there is, but I mean, is, is there a practical spiritual dimension? I mean, do you meditate and stuff? What I discovered is that, my goodness, you know, my sort of Ladakhi Tibetans, they just seem to have everything down that all the time now is becoming more obvious. So I never developed a really, uh, no, I never developed a, a meditation practice, you know, and I met the Dalai Lama quite a few times. I used to have private meetings with him. And, but what, what did I was, you do in those meetings? Spy! <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he... he I it, we, well, some of the discussions I probably shouldn't disclose because it was about the Politics relationship between between Muslims and Buddhists. And, but but I would say, you know, when I was giving talks around the world, that I found him so delightful and so absolutely wonderful. I but met him. I, he was very flirty, very flirty. No, but but I found almost every Ladakhi equally magnetically sparkling. There was a lightness of being, Tibetan thing. Yeah, yeah. This Ladakhi thing, it's not like there's something in the water. It's like these are just. This is what it's like to be a human being that's connected to source, living organically and naturally, rather than submitting yourself to abstract systems. If you think of the rather parochial and ordinary suffering of like someone from Dartford in England or from the suburbs in Philadelphia, it's like, I go to a job I don't want to do. I sit, you know, people will be listening to this now. Well, maybe not right now. They'll be in isolation, but like, you know, traveling to jobs they don't want to do, doing stuff, maybe now working from home. But now it's starting to seem to me like we are living these ritualized lives where we sacrifice our time for, as you said, conceptual and ethereal, notional, abstract ideas such exactly. as money, exactly. when we could be living a more real life where yeah. you get up, you look after your children or members of your community that require it, you participate in the growth or of your food or jobs that are around it. It's like we have moved away from the, I don't mean ordinary in a derogatory sense, although that word has sort of come to be regarded as such. I mean that, you know, like even me, I've had this interest, like I, I'm so interesting. I've had this interesting trajectory where I've like been enveloped and embedded in fame that that sort of fell apart, both sort of, I don't know, that that reality fell apart for me in various ways. Um, I've been sort of falling closer and closer to earth, but it also, it feels like an ascension. It feels like a realization. It feels like an awakening. And what I'm interested in is how, you know, I've always said that uh, revolution is unlikely without cataclysm. Awakening is unlike people aren't like, it's difficult to awaken from the spell of your life. The way that the ego weds with this system is um, a, a cultural masterpiece that our individualistic materialistic drives blend perfectly with consumerism. Why wouldn't they? They come from the same origin these systems are designed with that in mind like you said right from the dawn of these global trade ideologies perhaps even further back into the dawning of agriculture and nothing wrong of course with tending herds or growing crops if it can be done in a harmonious and respectful and loving way such as you're describing but the um, monocultures and the, the slaughterhouses and the battery farms and the factory jobs and the call centers and everything being regarded as an economic unit a little cell of energy that can be dispensed and dispatched just in the service of this imaginary idea. It feels like it has to end. And this is a a real opportunity for reflection, which sadly is going to cost a lot of lives and cause a lot of suffering and cause a lot of ruptures and ruptures. But I wonder, do you similarly regard it as a potential opportunity? Definitely, because what's already happening are these beautiful examples of communities coming together as a consequence. I've had, again, the most... Again, it's just, it, but honestly, I'm I, I'm seeing the growth of this even before the crisis because we are in crisis already. You know, the epidemic of mm. suicide among young people is absolutely a crisis, and it's right. growing in every that's culture. That's a tolerated crisis. Like people, are, oh, yeah. well, young people are killing well, themselves. Oh well, people are addicted to opioids. Doesn't really affect us. Oh, but this it's, is a but it's it's really been crisis. growing, and it's been, and then you know the crisis of of. Uh, you know just you know the depression the loneliness and so on is there even when people don't commit suicide there's of course been the environmental issues now not just around climate change but the pollution of our water the pollution and death of you know the insect life the bird life you know so people 
have been waking up at the grassroots and actually starting to take action. So I've been in touch with just wonderful examples where it's so beautiful is where community and restoration of nature come together. And there are lots of examples, including you know community gardens, rewilding projects, where nature has just helped to heal a little bit. But like my favorite things are things like a prison project where prisoners are helped to learn to garden. They are then it's sort of curated to help build communities so that they cook together, they eat together, and they're having a discussion. They're talking to each other as human beings. And to hear a prisoner who's been in and out of prison his whole life and who looks you know, as hardened as anybody can be, probably his whole life he's only ever known anger and violence. And to see him say that he'd never in his entire life had a conversation with people where they were actually interested in you know, yeah. who he was and, and what he was thinking and feeling. So this type of coming together in circuit, which by the way also with Alcoholics Anonymous and all the therapies that really work are bringing people into community. That's absolutely clear to me. Then when they bring them together in community and connect to nature, like there are other projects taking delinquent teenagers out into nature and helping them to actually guiding them to feel where they are and not, you know, so it's not just about kicking a ball around and being competitive as you're outside. It's actually a, a more meditative, contemplative <coughs> experience. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. Sorry, you're so beautiful. Oh. I love listening to you. Oh. You're explaining Thank. so many complicated things Thank so you. articulately and with Thank such a you. depth of experience. Thank I understand you. this is something you've been doing for like what, 40, 40, 50? 40 years. So I was in Ladakh, you know, I actually went back half of every year for about 30 years and built up what became one of the biggest appropriate technology projects in the world, you know, de demonstrating solar, small-scale hydro, and more important than anything was bringing information about the fact that this seemingly perfect life on the other side of the world wasn't so perfect because they were being bombarded with psychological warfare telling them that, you know, send your child to school and then they'll get a ticket. Basically, that's a ticket to get a job in the city. And in the school books, it would say, we've got to get these illiterate, you know, backward farmers off the land into the city. And then all the imagery that was romantic romanticized this way of life that looked like we never had to lift a finger, we didn't have to work, and we were just earning money. And the Ladakis, particularly the young, in a very short period, developed an inferiority complex about being themselves and even ashamed of their own language, their own clothing, their own food. We had we had lot we did a lot of very interesting work, and I would just love to see this type of work happening more now because there is still this huge information gap between the more land-based traditional village life in the so-called third world and the urban, glamorized, romanticized urban consumer culture. So then, you know, not only did they get bombarded with this idea about what schooling was going to do and how it was essential, but they also got bombarded with the idea that, that um, as the films were showing, that you had to look a certain way. And I saw these people, you know, literally in, in the 80s, we were also living the other part of the year in a small village in Spain. And even there, they still had more intergenerational community and all kinds of things that come with that. And there, too, the same role models for children came in. And they were Barbie and Rambo. <laughs> Barbie dolls and Rambo. And in Bhutan as well, same thing. And I saw these young people, you know, suddenly the girls totally self-conscious about their appearance and now long nails and high heels and so they couldn't do anything anymore. And the boys, you know, trying to look like they had no feeling they wouldn't be seen near their grandmother, you know, if you, you know, paid them. When I first went to Ladakh, one thing that brought tears to my eyes was seeing teenage boys cooing over a baby the way grannies would and there was nothing uncool about it you know it was like men were allowed to own their feminine 
And the women were very important in agriculture, which was the main economy, and they were strong. So there was this, which is another really important discussion, you know, this whole gender discussion right now. As I see it, you know, we need to be aware of this com very complex situation where the global consumer culture has so polarized gender roles made this joke out of both of them. And so the rejection of this as a social construct is okay up to a point. But you see what the postmodernists were doing in academia was telling people if they thought male and female were different, they were essentialists. And this was very, very naughty because you weren't supposed to believe that there was any real difference in the real world. From my experience, there is a very real difference generally you know, between most men and most women, and um, and but it's been polarized to to the total detriment of both men and women. So there's it's a long discussion, but it's a, a really important one too. The thing I think of is difference doesn't necessarily require stratification and the imposition of hierarchy or yeah. dominance. Yeah. And the thing I saw once in a documentary and always remembered was. Most men are taller than most women, but not all men are taller than all yeah, women. So yeah. there's a sort of a crossover, and like you know, like and I think as long as there's no requirement to impose to prevent people realizing or expressing themselves however they want to, then yeah, what's the problem with it? But you know, the other thing I hope you know I'd like to mention in my book Ancient Futures because I do talk about these things, and the thing that was so clear too was that you had this polarization, but you also had a huge push in the direction of what I call a teenage boy culture. It was this, you know, the sort of speed, the technology, the uprooting, the rejection of the more loving, connected, nurturing way of being. And as they were being encouraged to become these Rambos, they were also the first to leave their spiritual traditions, to leave the you know their communities, and to go into the big city very avidly and and happily. So, the the balance between you know the movement out and the more connected is what I think we we had through our evolution. Yes, and there is a requirement for there to be a spiritual dimension. I think to achieve the kind of cultures societies and systems that we're discussing i think that once you absent spirituality from most people's everyday experience then what remains is the material the rational the individual uh, resources and commodities if you introduce the spiritual then what well, then what is introduced is kindness compassion love togetherness unity service ideas that are older than our species with that have evolved alongside us which are integral to our survival strategies that are being discarded in favor of isolated principles that you know we're now seeing seeing the consequences of so it seems like whilst I feel that spirituality is ultimately about pragmatism it's a practical way of living if you I want to live I love that you say that I love yeah, because that's also what I've seen that's gone wrong in many ways, is that as many, you know, the whole westernization process, this entire commercial economic trajectory, you know, has killed off spiritual traditions and religions. And as in the West we started re rediscovering the spiritual, for a long time I feel people went too much into a type of spiritual materialism. It yeah. was this idea of spirituality and I'm meditating mm. and that's, that's, it starts, we'll make peace in the world by making peace inside ourselves first. And it was far too individualistic, it was far too fragmented in, in a typical way because we've been trained to think in categories. We've been trained away from more holistic, interconnected ways of seeing things. But now there is a shift. And so really I feel, you know, what we offer in our organization is, if you like, what does the practical, the pragmatic, the structural look like if we want to now imbue our way of life? And particularly it comes down to our economy, you know. The economy is how we use nature and people to meet our needs. And when we meet those needs in a more direct human scale way, we get a completely different feedback loop. We're also then operating much more with experiential knowledge rather than abstract ideas. 
And that, for instance, also means things like when in a local uh, shop, you know, in, even in the cities, a lot of this is happening, uh, or towns, when the shop owner you depend on is uh, a Muslim or, you know, is from Africa, then it's not this idea of blacks are like this and Muslims are like this. You know, this is so-and-so who I know. And you move away from the blindness of, of prejudice, which is born of a lack of experience. Now, it doesn't, you know, again, it's a complex story because I also saw in both Ladakh and Bhutan that when you pull people into a globalizing, urbanizing economy, and suddenly, instead of being dependent on each other, they're now dependent on anonymous forces far away, and this thing called money, and the money you never know if it's going to be enough. You drive them into the city, and now they're intensely competing for those scarce jobs, artificially scarce jobs, and artificially scarce money. Then suddenly, the other can become the enemy as groups. That's a you know, if you look at the so-called third world, that's a very common pattern. And also what happened a lot after the colonial powers left, because they had centralized the economy and created this artificial system, and now suddenly different groups were pitted against each other. I read this man, this uh, anatomical teacher called Matt in Los Angeles. I can't remember the name of their business now, but these two... Uh, these men, they're married, as a matter of fact, Matt and Bernie. Well, yeah, they give me this book on biology, and uh, there's this wonderful story about essentially about how we live lifestyles that our bodies are not suited to sedentary, screen staring lifestyles, and we've not we're not evolved to live the lives we're living just from an anatomical perspective. He told this wonderful story about how in some North American zoo, three maquette monkeys escaped and survived for six months in the city. And people are excited that maquette monkeys survived for six months in the city. But the author of the book points out that those maquette monkeys are exactly as evolved to live in a city as the human occupants. We're not designed or evolved to live in those kind of conditions. So the people in Bhutan who are living in tribal conditions or the native people of the various colonized lands who would you know were living in cultures that would be regarded as stone age had had a kind of natural teleology, ancient ideas, the stories that are told by the people of this land where I am now, Australia, thousands of years of oral tradition about harmonizing with your environment. I met a uh, what they call traditional owner dude yesterday. He told me the story of uh, kangaroo and koala were looking for water and koala kang- koala grew tired and discarded it. Uh, kangaroo dag- dug for the water, discovered it. Koala marched over and claimed credit for it. And as a result, koala lost its tail and was banished to the trees. Up until then, koala and kangaroo have been friends. Now, when I listen to stories like that, I think, what is the myth- what mythic truths are being held? And I thought, this story is telling you that when it comes to resources, we have to operate as a team we can't be dominated by the ego and if we do allow ourselves to be dominated by the ego there will be a type of castration and in our species it's unlikely that it's the tail that will be cut (laughs) off and uh, there are codes there is information there are truths realizing themselves and these truths are obfuscated by the opaque layer of capitalism designed to enshrine us in false systems but this awakening could be induced by this terribly frightening <laughs> dawn that we're currently experiencing, yeah. this time of great uncertainty where if you're talking to people in Sweden or you're talking to people in the Netherlands or wherever you're talking to people, they are being affected in this moment. A true recognition that we are all on one planet together, but we need to tribalize, localize, and connect once again to nature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think using the word tribal may not be the best. Because Why? I think, oh, because it's competitive. Well, no, no, not because it's competitive, but it's because... I think that the idea of strengthening the local community and the local economy very is very secular. Language. That may I say, yeah, Helena? Yeah, I'm a religious man. <laughs> well, I, it's just that. But the reason I'm saying maybe tribal isn't the best is that I do believe that so many people who are now voting for the Trumps and the Bolsonaros and so on, who, and who are being told we're going to grow the economy for you and you know forget about all these outsiders, those people 
I think, can be persuaded that it makes sense to strengthen their local businesses and their local community and local economy. And when you use the word tribal, there's still that little bit of prejudice. That Why? That's, but they think it's hippie. It's, they, it's seen as primitive, you know. And, but we are maybe, primates. You know, yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. And I also know an awful lot of people. You know, I just spoke on a podcast the other day from Santa Fe called Future Primitive. So there are a lot of people who realize that we actually do need to become more primitive. And that means also less over-intellectualized. And one thing that's difficult in my world is that in order to deal with the, the sort of understanding the economic system, it gets a bit heady. Mm. But I'm so privileged that I have so many teachings from the ancient culture that are actually about linking, you know, head, heart and body. And, you know, I started telling you also earlier how amazed I've been to learn from the Ladakis that the way they did things were pretty cool. And so they just had it down. For instance, their spirituality, they had... Their practice was very much like what Eckhart Tolle talks about, which is being in the now and actually being able to move in and out of that space where you're really feeling, you really feel how your brain has changed when you're in the more meditative mode, when the right hemisphere is more active. And now, just recently, and so they would do that. So most people. The average person who I found to be so incredibly alive and so full of just this humor and spirit, just amazing, magical people, they tended, the majority tended not to do long, you know, hour-long meditations, but all the time when you were with them, you could see that they were moving in and out of that more meditative way. And... Just recently, have you been hearing about the vagus nerve and the importance of the vagus nerve? Yes. It's this central nerve that goes down through our whole body. And it turns out that when we chant, we stimulate it in a really good way. And then I realized this is what they did all the time because you'd be talking to them and saying, hey, Russell, how are you today? And then you go, oh, my, you know, virtually humming that and you're already in that other space. And then you come back and say, oh, did you have a good time? So they're like literally in conversation. They'd be moving in and out of that space. And I, and that's sort of, for me, I think, so my meditation, has, I'm trying to practice that. And another lesson from them is that, and I think this is true of almost all traditional cultures, that they sang and made music and danced, but in this participatory way. It wasn't a question of being a star and being perfect and, you know, practicing and, you know, one star gets paid a million dollars and all the rest are just passive spectators. It was this thing where everybody did it, old and young together. And, you know, they're dancing and they're singing and all of that was a type of dancing and singing that worked for everybody from, you know, children to the old. And by the way, talking now about the virus and, you know, you've seen how in Italy, where they still have a little bit more of that tradition, how on they're standing on balconies and singing, you know, across the, across the road and even harmonizing and, you know, and again, the whole community coming together in that way. It's a beautiful example of also something that I see happening already before the virus, it started happening, but I think the virus is going to speed up this process hugely. So there is this trend, I call them ancient futures trends, that we're recovering things that are in our DNA and, and again, that are part of that connection. And it relates to also, you know, the difference between being famous, which is awful, because you feel isolated and all these people are projecting onto you their idea of who you are. We want to be loved for who we are, for, you know, who we really are. And when we feel that connection of real community, it's a completely different experience. I've had enough of a tiny taste of fame to know that myself. 
But you, of course, know it much better. I've drunk heavily from that particular vessel. Helena, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. That was an amazing conversation. I know you could talk forever. <laughs> I'm gonna be, we're going to be around for a while because no one's going anywhere anytime soon, it seems. So I hope we get to speak much more. Thank you very much. I, um, we'll um, put the in the link, we should put uh, information about some of your books and a website. And uh, it's made me realise I'm going to go and listen to the audio book of Revolution again for Christ's sake <laughs> Helena, very good thank you so much for teaching us so compassionately and beautifully thank you for everything you do we oh, nice, love you guy. we love you Russell what a nice bloke well I hope you loved that wonderful episode of Under the Skin with Helen and Norberg Hodge isn't she wonderful what a brilliant educator what a fantastic uh, mentor she is let me know what you thought of it on Instagram tag me at Russell Brown or you can twist, tweet me don't twist me don't ever twist me. At Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. Sign up to the mailing list, russellbrand.com. And why not have a listen to some old episodes of Under the Skin, like the Charles Eisenstein one. He's uh, coming on again soon with some brilliant insights and wonderful wisdom. Or listen to Lawrence Scott, author of Picnic, Comma, Lightning. I enjoyed that episode enormously. He's a brilliant writer. Check my YouTube channel daily for new videos. You might like the one of me and the missus at Joy Journal. Follow her on Insta. Her book is coming, what? The Joy Journal. At the Joy Journal. All right, it's at the Joy Journal. I talk to her in flesh. I don't follow her on Instagram. I've never gone, hey, how are you down there? I just go, oi, all right, mate, there's a game. I'm hungry. Help me. Help the children. I'm being eaten. Um, so, yeah, follow her. And also her book, The Joy Journal, is coming out soon. And why don't we put a link to that? So, places. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. I love you. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. Turtle power. That's our new jingle. Luminary Media. Turtle power. You don't think that's... A... Yeah, like the... Tur Luminary Media. Turtle power. Yeah. <laughs>